Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher. Here in New York City, which is not dead despite reports to the contrary in the mainstream media, (laughs) yeah, uh, New York is is not doing well. Not that many cities around the U.S. are doing well during this pandemic, but I do believe that things will come back here. We still have all the infrastructure uh, to be a great city. I think that this pandemic is... Uh, you know, really having a dramatic effect on many, many businesses and many individuals here. A lot of my friends are leaving town, but I would like to place a bet that New York comes back stronger than ever at some point soon, as you can probably hear the sirens right outside my window, (laughs) even as we speak. And the irony of that is not lost on me. Uh, The reason I want to place a bet is because I just want to try to be anything like Mike McDonald. I want to tell a quick Mike McDonald story, but for those of you who don't know, uh, he cashed in on yet another prop. So just to refresh your memory, this guy told us all in something like February that he was willing to bet and lay 20 to 1 against there being a World Series of Poker in Las Vegas this year. And he won a fortune on so many people just assuming that the pandemic would not be quite so pandemic-y and as we know it has been quite pandemic-y and did cause the World Series of Poker to be canceled or at least moved to online so of course he won that bet and in case you don't know he also made a number of bets something like a quarter million dollars worth that he could make 90 out of 100 free throws which even a lot of professional basketball players can't do so uh, he won that bet as well. So I'm I'm trying to get into the Mike McDonald prop business. He's so good at finding things that he thinks will happen that most people don't think will happen and getting people to bet with him on those things. He is just one step ahead of the rest of us. So a real quick story. This is probably 10 years ago, maybe from the 2010 World Series of Poker. And I had never met him before, but of course, I knew a lot of people who knew him. So he sits down at my table. I think it was a $1,500 buy-in, one of the Saturday No Limit events that, you know, at that time we're getting, you know, several thousand players per event. So he sits down and he's wearing this gaudy World Series of Poker bracelet. And (laughs) apparently he had actually lost a prop bet. It wasn't even his bracelet, but of course you sit down at a table and everyone's going to ask you about your bracelet. And also you look like such a tool wearing the bracelet. And if you have one and you wear it, I don't mean any offense, but I just think it's kind of like walking around with a trophy. Uh, To me, it's not the same as a Super Bowl ring or a World Series baseball ring. Uh, For one thing, a bracelet is so much gaudier than a ring. And for another thing, a ring can stay on your finger, like you're still 
It's I don't know. I just think rings are different. You guys let me know what you think about that. But anyway, uh, Timex, as he's known, Mike McDonald, had lost a prop where he had a bracelet bet with one of his friends. I'm not sure who. And the deal was if one of them won a bracelet earlier in the summer that the other one would have to wear it, wear the other player's bracelet for the rest of the summer in every event. And every time that someone asked about the bracelet, he had to give a stock answer of, you know, whoever won, won the bracelet because he's better at poker than I am. So to me, that's a really fun prop. And that would totally motivate me. Like if I had to say, if I made a bet like that with Killing Bird or any of the (laughs) TPE pros and I had to uh, give that answer and have to wear the bracelet and have to answer the same question a hundred thousand times, why are you wearing the bracelet? uh, It would just really tilt me. And I think that would really motivate me to play my best during the World Series of Poker, uh, assuming that one ever happens again. So uh, yeah, so that's what he was wearing. So that was my first introduction to him. And I thought he had a great personality, a terrific smile on his face, just a really fun-loving guy that was clearly very good at poker. Uh, and in 2010, all you really had to do was just be tighter than most players, and you could probably make a lot of money that way. And that seemed to be his strategy at our $1,500 bracelet event table. He was pretty much on lockdown, but having fun and talking to everyone and not really getting after it that much. Of course, when he did get involved in a pot, he had it and they still tried to bluff him and he called him down and he got all the chips. So the funny story though, besides the bracelet that he was wearing, which was so ridiculous, was he was living in a house with a number of other very well-known young professional players, Tony Dunst, Andrew Lichtenberger, and probably a couple of other guys. And they were all having a summer-long Olympics-style competition, and they called it the world's most awesome human. So to me, I love this right away because, you know, the grind of the summer, everybody playing every day and, you know, doing cash games and satellites and playing in Lord knows how many bracelet events. Now, back then, there wasn't quite as much action at the Venetian, the Wynn, and Planet Hollywood, and everywhere else. We all run around and play all the different events around the city. So it was pretty much you would go to the Rio, play your bracelet event, and then go back to your poker house. And I'm a huge fan of having something besides poker to do after a long day of playing poker or a long week of playing poker or a long summer of playing poker. So what these guys had was an ongoing competition with judges and prizes and medals and everything. They really did it full out to find out who is the world's most awesome human. Now, sure, they had competitions like who can do the most push-ups or who can jump the highest, but they were talking about most awesome all-around human. So... He was telling me they had one, like, who could read a book the fastest (laughs) and still comprehend it. Uh, There was a mathematical exercise. Um, I suggested one, and I later found out that they actually did it, where they had a grilled cheese competition, because there is an art to making a really good grilled cheese sandwich. 
And by the way, no one should be surprised. Uh, Timex won that one too. So I just love that. And I've never actually done a whole summer where I stayed in a house with other people. Uh, I tend to be more of a hotel guy. I mean, I guess because I'm in hotels so often anyway, I prefer to just stay in hotels. I don't like to stay at the Rio, of course, because it's just a horrible hotel. It smells like smoke. Uh, It's nice that the rooms are big, but that's about all I like about it. I like to stay at Palm's Place or some other similar place. I think it's just because I'm used to being in hotels from doing comedy. So I spend half the year on the road anyway in a normal year, not this year, obviously. And so for me, I like to be in a hotel. But I've always wondered what it would be like to have that sort of experience. And I remember in the old days listening to the TPE Live podcast, which was separate from the main TPE podcast that you're listening to now, where it would be more like about the stories and they would talk about, you know, just the experience of being in Vegas for the summer. And you kind of get these kind of frat boy vibes, like guys picking on each other and barbecuing and and drinking beer and all that kind of stuff. And I never had that experience at the WSOP. So I've always wondered what that would be like, but I would love to have spent that summer with those guys to try to find out who's the world's most awesome human, which has to be the one who is best at doing push-ups, doing math, reading fast, and making grilled cheese. And they probably had you know 30 other events throughout the course of the summer, each one more ridiculous than the last. So... Yeah, he made a strong impression on me. One of the first players that I ever met at the table that I really felt understood that we can play very, very well, but still be fun-loving guys and have a good time. So I've always tried to bring that with me to every World Series of Poker I've gone to since, and really every day of my life if I can. So enough about that. I want to let you guys know what I've been doing. This week, it's been a very busy week online. I've been playing pretty much every night on ACR. Always love hearing from you guys, by the way. Tweet me at Clayton Comic and let me know if you are at my table. Also, my DMs are open. If you don't want to tell the whole world that you're at my table, for whatever reason, you can you can send me a private message. My DMs are open. So then that's on Twitter. They're also open on Instagram, but I really don't use Instagram that much because I hate Facebook, but I'm not going to get into that right now. So anyway, find me on Twitter and let me know if we played together, what your screen name is. Obviously, I'm Clayton Comic on ACR. I'm also Clayton Comic on all the other websites except for WSOP New Jersey. There I had to change my name because I already had Clayton Comic from when I played on that site in Las Vegas. So they make you change your name. So on the WSOP New Jersey site, I am Clay Fletch. And on Party Poker New Jersey, I just use my full name. So yeah, obviously I'm not trying to hide my identity when I play. I I think that it would be great if online poker would go to a everyone has to use his or her full name (laughs) format. I think it would be nice. It's good to know who you're playing against. There's no other sport in the world where your opponents are allowed to be anonymous or hide their identity or use somebody else's real name as their identity. You know, like Jamie Kerstetter is Dan Bilzerian. Somebody else, uh, Ari Angle is Phil Ivey on there. I mean, look, guys, I think we should just 
put poker more out in the open. Let people know who you are. Anyway, with those New Jersey sites, the regulated sites, people can pretty easily Google and find out who you really are anyway. But I guess the idea is that if they're not going to go to the trouble to do that, then people would rather stay anonymous online. I get it, but I think to grow the game, it's better off. We're better served just to be honest and say, yeah, this is me. This is my screen name. I'm playing here. I know who you are. Can you imagine if you had to go in the boxing ring against Mike Tyson, but you didn't know that it was Mike Tyson? Like, that's not fair. And I don't think that's something we should be hiding behind any longer. Of course, in the early days of online poker, the idea of putting your real information on the internet was, you guys have to remember, that was a long time ago. And people were very nervous. Like people weren't comfortable doing online shopping. They didn't want to use their real names online. So we all came up with clever nicknames. But even then, I think I was Clayton (laughs) on Party Poker back in the day. So I've just never been one to hide who I am from the rest of the world. So anyway, it's been a good week. Uh, You guys know that I had a rough July playing in all the bracelet events that were available here in the States. I had a negative 50% ROI in July. And I'm happy to say that August has been basically one winning session after another. And this week was no exception, which is good. I mean, you know, I've survived downswings before. I've had a rough week or a rough month before. You guys know I don't really play a really tight style, so I invite a lot more variance into my game. So I never really let it get me too down, but it has been nice. I made two pretty good final tables this week. One of them was a $160 buy-in on ACR that was a progressive knockout. They have a big series of PKO tournaments coming up, and so I've been trying to play a lot of them in preparation for that then I also final tabled uh, one of their regular $50 $55 $50,000 guarantee or whatever it is just the the tournaments that they do every day that's that's nothing uh, unusual or special I didn't win either tournament but it's always fun to make final tables and I have a few hands that I want to jump into right now the first one comes from the regular tournament, not the uh, not the PKO. It's a $50 buy-in. It's kind of early on. Let's see. The blinds are 100, 200 with a 25 ante, and we have 15,000 up from the starting stack of 10,000. This is probably about maybe less than an hour into the, the tournament here, and it's folded to me on the button. And we have the Queen 10 offsuit. So we just have to talk about the blinds before I decide what to do. Uh, The small blind is a very loose, aggressive player. He's been trying to get after it a lot. He's doing well. He's got 17,000 behind. So he's the only player at the table that has us covered. And the big blind is a pretty much a regular tight reg who waits for good hands and doesn't really do anything too creative. So I think this is an open here. We can't be scared about getting three bet or whatever. The plan is to open and figure out what to do afterwards. We know we might get three bet. 
I think Queen 10 is kind of on the cusp between calling a three bet and folding. Now that might sound a little bit loose to you, but especially when it's a very aggressive three better, you know, two Broadway cards in position against a guy that's going to three bet really light with a lot of hands isn't so bad. I mean, sure, you could be dominated because he would obviously three bet hands like ace queen and ace 10, but more likely he's just going to be three betting because it's fun to three bet. Uh, looking at his HUD stats, I only had 75 hands on him, so uh, it, it's not really that much to go by. But his 3-bet percentage is 12, which is really high. So I'm ready for it, and I'm not planning to fold. So I opened to 400, just the minimum here. And the small blind, the player we just mentioned, makes it 1725, which is a really big 3-bet. And he's got 17,000 behind. The big blind folds as expected. And it's on me. I think this is really close. I mean, I said I wasn't planning to fold, but I also wasn't planning on him more than 4Xing my open. So when he does that, I think we can fold. I think it's very optional. Uh, the thing is, we, we you know, we're pretty deep. Our stacks are pretty deep. So we can see a flop in position if we want to. You could also go really crazy here and raise again. You know, he, But he's made it 1,700. So what are we going to make it like? I guess the minimum you'd want to make it from there is something like 46, 47. So if you do that, then you've already put in almost a third of your starting stack with queen 10. Now, obviously, we're not going to call off if he keeps raising, but I don't know. It is an option, but I think calling is more attractive. I think folding is also fine and probably standard, but I decided to make the call because I'll be able to play in position and I'll know what's going on a lot of the time. We do call, and now with 38.75 in the pot, and we have the effective stack of 13,300. The flop comes, tray of spades, deuce of spades, deuce of hearts. So it's tray, deuce, deuce, and hero with no spade, queen of clubs, 10 of diamonds. So, the plan here should be to give up on this hand a lot. Unfortunately <laughs> for Villain, he doesn't know that's my plan. And he bets 1400 into 38.75. Okay, well, if you're going to down bet to that extreme and just bet about a third of the pot, just, just a little more than a third of the pot, you know, giving me four to one on a call. I'm going to call with my two over cards and even just to float and see what happens on the turn. The whole point of being in position is that we can have some maneuverability. So if he's milking me here with a big hand like aces or kings, then fine. He gets an extra 1400 But to me, it's well worth it to float here and see what he does on the turn. Also, we might be able to win with one of our six outs, the three queens, or the three remaining tens, although there's no guarantee of that, our hand can improve. And six outs when you're getting four to one is perfectly fine on the flop. So we call. Uh, if you want to fold to this bet, it's a little tight for me, and I don't think that you should be calling the three bet before the flop if you're not planning to continue on a tiny continuation bet like this on an innocuous trade deuce deuce flop. That's hard to say. Trade deuce deuce flop. So I call, and now with 
66.75 in the pot. The turn is the five of hearts. So our board is tray, deuce, deuce, five with two spades and two hearts. Uh, at this point, the villain checks. So even though he was extremely strong with his betting before the flop, all he's done now is bet tiny on the flop and check the turn. I think this screams, we need to take this pot away. The whole point of floating on the flop was so that we could see what happens on the turn and possibly take it away. Uh, I bet 5,000 here. I want to discourage him from calling with two over cards better than mine, a hand like King Jack, Ace King. I'm trying to fold all those hands out as well as any Ace X that now has a gut shot. So looking back, I mean, I see why I did this, but I do think it's a little too big. I don't think 5,000 does anything that 4,200 into 66.75 doesn't. So I think that this bet sizing is a little large. Uh, villain does fold and we win the pot. So I wanted to talk about that hand because if you have a player that loves to get after it and loves to three bet you, especially when you open on the button, when you have such an opponent on your left, I think it's good to try to find spots like this where you can take advantage of that player's aggressiveness and actually accumulate chips that way. Remember, guys, because he's loose aggressive, he's less likely than most of us are to have something at any given point in any given hand. And on a three high flop, uh, usually everybody has nothing. So it's a good time to float and see what happens. But yeah, I didn't need to go quite so big there on the turn. I do like a big sizing though, because if you price him in too much, especially when he has a hand like Ace X and he's got a gut shot and you might think his aces are good, like you do have to bet big in order to get him to fold those hands, which do comprise a pretty large portion of his pre-flop three betting range. But anyway, even though I think I made a mistake with my sizing, we did win that pot and we were well on our way. So this tournament was going great pretty much from the beginning. Uh, much, much later though, we're going to fast forward a couple of hours here, about 30 places away from the money. So not quite bubble time, but I do think that around this point of the tournament, you know, ACR late registration is finally closed. I think after five hours of late reg, it's finally closed. And now all the players that have been grinding away at this tournament for a very long time now, several hours, are starting to look at maybe cashing. And the min cash in this tournament was not nothing. I mean, it's a $55 buy-in and the min cash was $120. So depending on your bankroll, you might be thinking about that even 30 spots away from the money. So keeping that in mind, uh, we are in first place in the tournament with 130,000. Uh, the average stack was around 50,000. So we have been cruising right along. Now, how we got most of these chips, and the reason I don't include a lot of these hands is because there were just several pots where we got it in good pre-flop with like ace-king against ace-queen all-in pre-flop, or pocket aces against pocket jacks. And those kind of hands, there's no real analysis to do, but that is just the story of how we got all these chips. So here we are, a seven-handed table. You know, it's a nine-max a nine tournament, but for whatever reason, we have, we're seven-handed. 
And we are in the big blind in this hand with jack of clubs, six of clubs. So the blinds are 900, 1800 with a 200 ante. It's folding around to the button and he's got 37,000. So he's got about 20 big blinds and he opens the minimum to 3,600. Fold to me in the big blind with jack six suited. You can fold if you want. I like to defend here, just getting a really good price. And we, again, but if you do call, you can't just have a fit or fold plan, okay? Now, I'm not saying you need to try to win every pot, which is usually the mistake that I make, as I tend to play too aggressively and see every single opportunity as an opportunity, even though some of them are bad spots. I will take too many spots in a tournament. But from what I understand, from talking to TPE coaches such as Alex Fitzgerald, most players are on the opposite extreme and they don't take enough spots. So maybe listening to some of the things I do will be good for some of you who have trouble deciding what to do when I don't flop a pair. So here we are with the jack six of clubs and the plan is to hopefully flop a flush. But if that doesn't happen, we need to find ways to win the pot when we don't make a hand. When we are 30 away from the money and we have an opponent with a below average but not desperate stack size with his 20 big blinds, I think certain opportunities might present themselves. Even though it's not officially bubble time, many players, especially on ACR, they I do notice that they seem to be cautious, overly cautious, even at this point in one of these tournaments. So there's 9,900 in the pot, and Villain now has 33,000 behind. And so his SPR is 3.3. So yeah, that gives us a little bit of maneuverability. He's got three and a third times the pot left in his stack, which is great. And the flop comes, King of Spades, Four of Spades, Tray of Clubs. So king for tray, and we have this, the jack six of clubs. So we didn't flop great, but this flop has a little bit more promise than you might think because we've got backdoor straight and flush draws. And when our opponent has a pair between kings and fours, we will sometimes have outs in the form of our jacks. So our jacks could be live. And we do have these backdoor draws. So we check, planning to get a little creative depending on our opponent's bet sizing. And into 9,900, he bets only 2,400. So this is uh, a 25% of the pot bet. Tiny, tiny bet here. And part of it has to do with our opponent's stack size. If he's trying to get all in here, he's never going to do it betting 2,400 of his remaining 33,000 here on the flop. So basically his sizing reveals to me that he is not trying to get broke with this hand. Now he could be making this tiny bet because he sees that I am a player who occasionally likes to check raise, <laughs> to say the least. So if he's doing that for that reason, I applaud it. I think that you know betting small to induce a bluff from an aggressive opponent is a very good strategy and one that actually works pretty well against me a good amount of the time. But this opponent, he didn't strike me as the type to be leveling me like that. I feel 
if he had a king or better, he would bet big enough to try to get his whole stack in, or at least to try to get plenty of value for his hand. Also note that there are two spades on the board, so most players would bet a little bigger than this so that I'm not priced in with any number of draws, like 6-5 is open-ended, any two spades has a flush draw. So the small bet kind of revealed to me that it was more likely than usual that my opponent had a weak hand. So for that reason, I decided to spring my trap now. I could also just call this. I mean, he bet so small. I could actually just call this and see if I pick up equity on the turn. But I decided to go for the check raise here, and I made it 9,900, which was the original pot size on the flop before our opponent put in the 2,400. In retrospect, I think this bet is also too large. I don't think that 9,900 does anything that 7,000 doesn't. And then when I'm wrong, I can save a few chips. So here are two bluffs in a row where I'm betting bigger than I need to. So I really like my thinking here. I think I can have even more maneuverability, though, if I make it smaller, like to 7,000 or 7,200. And then if somehow my opponent finds a call, I can then put in a bigger bet on the turn when I pick up equity with a five or a club or maybe even a jack. There are so many cards that can come that would give us either a straight draw or a flush draw or a pair. So we need to be careful to not put our opponent into an all-in or fold situation. And I think that's what I did here. He really can't call this bet. He's not going to put in 10,000 of his 33,000 here on the flop with too many hands unless he wants to trap or slow play with a hand like ace-king or three-kings. So more likely, our opponent is just going to push or fold. And that's not what we want when we have a hand that can pick up equity with so many cards on the turn. So I like a smaller raise here. But this play worked. He folded. And I definitely think I should go smaller. So that's something I'm going to be more aware of in terms of playing the effective stack in the future. Fast forward about another hour, and we're right on the bubble now with 91 players left in the tournament and 90 to be paid. Uh, this tournament had 574 entrants, so we're literally on the bubble. And the blinds are 1,500, 3,000, with a 400 ante. And the average stack is 63,000. And we are still in first place with 170,000, almost three times the average stack. So obviously things have continued to go well. Our bluffs are getting through. Our value bets are getting called. And it seems like every time we turn around, we have ace-king versus ace-queen all in pre-flop. And it holds up over and over and over. These are the kind of tournaments we love to play <laughs> where we just haven't gotten rivered yet. So that's been fun. Uh, the table is now eight-handed, 91 players remaining, 90 to be paid. The action folds to the cutoff. A pretty good, uh, aggressive, strikes me as a reg. I didn't recognize him. I didn't have a ton of hands on him. But from what I've seen of his play so far, he seems like a decent opponent. Maybe someone who realizes we're on the bubble, and so he should be opening a little bit more often than usual. So he min-raises to 6K. 
with 82,000 behind. So he's got an above average stack as well. And the button, who also has a pretty big stack at 112, calls the 6,000. Uh, now the button has been pretty much what I would call like an average reg for the $50 tournaments on ACR. Nothing too fancy, just kind of waiting for good spots and, and taking them. So his call indicates a reasonably strong hand. The small blind folds, and we have pocket jacks. Now the dynamics of being on the button here are interesting. I don't mind taking this pot down. I mean, there's already a good amount of chips in there, and if I can just three bet here and take it down a lot, I'm happy to do so. I'm also getting a great price to just go ahead and call and see the flop with two jacks. I don't like the latter option though because, well, number one, I like to abuse bubbles <laughs> and I have a big stack to do it with. Uh, and I'd rather just take it down now because the real problem is I'll be out of position for the entire hand. And we all know how hard it is to play pocket jacks, especially if one or two overcards come on the flop or the turn. So I'd rather just take it down now. So I go for it here. I make it 21,000 with jacks. So three and a half times the original. No, I like this sizing a lot more. I didn't over bet as I did in the two other hands we discussed. I like this better because it gives us more maneuverability. Remember, the original Razor only has 81,000 in his stack. So if we make it too big, we're going to be compelled to call if he decides to shove. And I'm really glad I only made it 21,000 because the next thing that happened was the cutoff shoves for 81,000 and the button folds. Now the action's on us. It cost us 60,000 more to call and there's about 120,000, a little less in the pot. So we're getting almost two to one on a call. And normally I would call lots of shoves with lots of hands getting two to one. Two to one is pretty compelling. You only need 33% pot equity to break even on a call. The thing is, we're on the bubble, and I wonder whether the original Razor, who again had about 60% more than an average stack in this situation. No, that's wrong. He had about 30% more than an average stack to start the hand. I wonder if a player like him, who again, I said is a decent reg, seems to know what he's doing, has earned my respect with a few plays that he's made already. I wonder if such a player would go all in right here on the button, even with a hand as strong as Ace-King. And I'm sure he wouldn't do it with Ace-Jack. He might do it with Ace-King or possibly Ace-Queen. I don't think he would do it with Nines. Maybe he would do it with Tens. So when he shoves, I can put him on an extremely tight range. And if I call and lose this pot, I'll still have about 50% more than an average stack. But do I want to give up my chip lead? Normally, I'm happy to call it off with jacks. The player has only 27 big blinds. And so normally, I would be happy to, to go ahead and, and call with my jacks. But because we are on the bubble here, I think this becomes a much closer decision than normal because, in my experience, very few players are going crazy 
with hands like King Queen, Ace Five suited, some of the hands that we'll see in other stages of a tournament, especially from a player with 27 bigs. We're just not going to see those kind of hands on the actual literal hand for hand bubble. So I think he should have a range that has jacks pretty much crushed, aces, kings, queens, maybe ace king, but maybe not even. He knows that I'm the chip leader. He sees that I have a really big stack and that I can absolutely afford to call him. And he's shoving anyway, right on the bubble. To me, I had to respect it and I threw it away. I don't know if I cost myself more chips playing this way or if I could have maybe lost a little bit less by just calling pre-flop and seeing that flop from out of position with the jacks for just 3,000 more rather than putting in 21,000 total. But I mean, that's not really the way to look at it. Anyway, I could easily double the guy up completely on like a six high flop. So <laughs> there's always that. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this hand particularly. I, there aren't too many times when a player can shove 27 big blinds and I will fold pocket jacks. But in this spot, it felt like the correct play. Or perhaps the bubble abuser got abused. I want to very quickly do one more hand from this tournament. Uh, speaking of bubbles, this is going to be the final table bubble. Basically, there are 11 players left and we're still in first place. We have 900,000 when the average was 580,000. The blinds are 8,000, 16,000 with a 2,000 ante and our table is the five-handed table. There's one other table left in the tournament and that table is six-handed. Folds to me in the cutoff with pocket nines. We notice that the big blind is the short stack in the tournament with 240,000. Again, the average is 580,000 and the big blind is 16,000. So noting that we decide to just min raise here with the nines. We'd been varying our raise sizing a little bit earlier, depending on the other stacks at the table, etc. But here I think a min raise with nines is just fine. Unlike before, I am calling if he shoves. Pre-flop, I'm happy to get it all in with nines against uh, his little stack. Here, he's got exactly 15 times the big blind, and I'm not folding nines to that stack. So I raised hoping he would go ahead and shove. Uh, instead, the button and small blind fold, and the big blind calls 16,000 more off of his 240,000 stack. So now he's got... 208,000 remaining in his stack. We're going to see a flop. Uh, the pot is 82,000, so the effective SPR is two and a half. The flop comes jack of spades, 10 of clubs, five of hearts. All in all, a pretty darn good flop for pocket nines, unless our opponent has a weird two pair with something like seven five or a jack, he could have a lot of jack X in his range, but mostly the nine should be well ahead on this flop. So we're happy with the flop and the villain checks. And with 82,000 in the pot, I decided to just bet 24,000. Now my intention here is to try to squeeze a little bit of value out of a hand like seven, six or five, four. Like when I have 
the best hand, but I'd need to try to get called. I have to bet smaller because if I bet too big, I can only get called by better hands. So we just bet 24. And then to my surprise, my opponent check raises all in for 209,000. So at that point, there's about 310,000 in the pot. It will cost us another 185 to call. It's pretty close. Uh, It just depends on whether we think this opponent would do this with a hand worse than pocket nines. Here's the problem, guys. I only bet 24, which may have induced this check raise. And also, it's been proven basically by many a solver that shoving here, check shoving with a hand like 8-7 or 9-7 or really just any piece of this board is profitable at these stack depths, assuming that I have a decent amount of continuation betting frequency. So for that reason, I decided to call. I've got the bad news. My opponent actually had Jack Deuce of Hearts. So he flopped top pair with a backdoor flush draw, which at his stack size is more than enough to go ahead and check raise, get it in against me. I don't know if this is just uh, results-oriented thinking or not, but I actually regretted this hand. The reason why is, as I said before with the actual bubble, the final table bubble is also a time in the tournament when many players don't take enough chances. So that means it's less likely than usual that my opponent is bluffing or doing this with a marginal hand like King 7 or whatever. So... For that reason, I need to take this bet a little bit more seriously. I bet small enough that I could actually get away from the nines here. If you're trying to outplay the chip leader with a big check raise when you don't have at least a jack on this board, and you're doing that right on the final table bubble, where in this tournament there was a pretty big pay jump between 10th and 9th, and again, there are 11 players left here. You know, Maybe if you're doing all that, you deserve to win this pot when nines are good. I don't know. I decided to call it off because in his shoes, I would probably be check raising a pretty wide range. So I tend to assume that other players have the same tendencies that I do. But the more I play, the more I realize that most players are tighter and more cautious around bubbles than I am. So I kind of regret this one. Let me know if you guys would call it off here with the nines. Is it just because I saw a jack that I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have done that? I mean, I tend not to be too results-oriented, but is that clouding my thinking here? What did you want to do before you knew what he had? Please let me know on Twitter, at Clayton Comic. And, oh, by the way, I got second place in this tournament, so it was a pretty good score. My $55 buy-in, I believe the prize was $4,800 or something like that. So that's not bad. You know, anytime you can... Basically, 100x your buy-in, you should be happy. (laughs) Uh, And this is just another really good result I've had this week. Nothing too huge, like no five-figure scores, but a lot of final tables where I end up making, you know, a nice chunk of change for a pretty small investment. So I'm hoping I can continue that. Before, I wanted to say I really appreciate all of the reviews you guys have been leaving on Stitcher, on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, 
it means a lot to us. Okay, please keep the reviews coming. Please give us a good rating and give us a good review if you enjoy the podcast. It's helping us. We're starting to get more popular and climbing the ranks in what has really become a very crowded field of poker podcasts. So I just want to say thank you for those of you who have left kind words about me or about Tournament Poker Edge or about this podcast on those various outlets. It really does mean a lot. And also, please follow me on Twitter, at Clayton Comic. So for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you all so much for listening. Fun, fun. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa.